Brothers Book Club podcast. We are here with another book review episode, and we are installing another edition of the Penguin Little Black Classics Collection book reviews. Today we'll be reviewing The Life of a Stupid Man, which is by author, and this is where Amanda, this is where you jump in and pronounce the name. This is by author. No, I'll, I'll happily try. Though it does have, I'll be, in my defense, I'll be fair to myself, there is a U here that has a symbol over it that I don't think I know how to pronounce. So I'm going to go with Ryun Nosuke. So Ryun Nosuke Akutagawa, mm-hmm. who was a Japanese modernist author. I didn't want to put you on the spot because I thought you knew it, Amanda. I put you on the spot because of my shame. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> the only reason I would know how to pronounce it, though, is I, I did take a, a manga class and then sure. uh, a Japanese film class. In there college, we go. So okay, Did, is this a name you've seen before? I it is certainly not. is not familiar with him myself. No, it is not. But I feel like I I know the family name um, Akutagawa. I think I've seen that somewhere, but I'm just not sure right. where I've seen that before. Right. Yeah, no, certainly it could be. He was an author who actually committed suicide at age 35, so had hardly lived to see many things published, though he wrote, according to Wikipedia, hey, thanks, research department. Once again, shout outs to the <laughs> fine folks at Wikipedia for their good work. Go to donate now. That's a yep. plug. Good job, uh, guys. Any, yeah, way to go. Keep it, Keeping this podcast active, that's for sure. Keeping us afloat, <laughs> if nothing else. No, but he, yeah, so he committed suicide at a pretty young age, and I think he'd written quite a few short stories in his time, but yeah, certainly didn't live live to see his prime. Authors generally write for a fairly, into a fairly late age, I suppose. So yeah, we are here to cover his works. I believe what we have here is, now correct me if I'm wrong, though, was Death Register a short story, or was that also part autobiography? It was, from what I understand, autobiographical. That's actually his youth, yeah, his life. So what we have here is mostly autobiography, including something called Death Register and then something called The Life of a Stupid Man, which, by the way, is the title of the collection. So that's what we're here to review today is The Life of a Stupid Man. And then there is one short story here, which we'll get into in some detail because it was uh, quite famously adapted into a movie, which then was pretty award-winning by a really legendary Japanese filmmaker uh, named Kurosawa. So we'll get into that one later. We will begin our reviews today in the customary, now traditional way here on the pod, which is to do a one-sentence simile review of the book. Amanda, why don't you start us off this week? What is your one-sentence simile review? Sure. I said, uh, reading this is like reading a collaboration among Poe, Dickinson, Whitman, and Hemingway. Sure. Um, it's a whole bunch of very well-known authors, but the the reason that I chose that was like Poe and Dickinson, uh, their themes were uh, mostly about death and suffering and stuff like that. Even like Poe's sure. poetry is, is like that too. And he, he just like to write about the, the macabre. And then there's Whitman, who's all about nature, which that was another common theme that I saw in the, these writings. And then Hemingway for mm-hmm. the style. Um, so it's like that all four of those people had kind of collaborated and created these works almost in, in my mind. Now I demand, and I demand <laughs> as on, on, on the part of the listener of this podcast, I demand that you do the same simile, 
but only use pop culture movies from the last decade. Oh, that is, wow. That is your current challenge. <laughs> let's just assume, let's assume we have at least one listener who did not pay any attention in high school English. We, there must be at least one of them out there. And in fact, I would wager to say if he were here, the other brother on the pod, my brother, Ryan, might fit that demographic. I don't know if he would know any of the references you just made, though I think he would know Whitman because we've read him, and he would know Poe from Reputation alone. The right. others, I don't know. Are there, is there any contemporary? He Probably by name, but not by yeah. style and probably not by story. I got you. You're, I got you. You really don't get, you get the old man in the sea in some high schools. Yeah. But otherwise, outside of um, AP level classes, I don't think Hemingway is that popular other than old man in the sea. Yeah. Which I'm convinced is popular. I ma- maintain my current theory and my maybe conspiracy theory about high school English, which is that they just prefer novella length things. So I think mm-hmm. its status is so safe because of its length, but that's just my own theory. I guess. For films, um, even though I haven't watched this particular film myself, but uh, from what I understand, from what people have told me and from what um, I've read about it, I would say I guess the style reminds would remind me of the movie Parasite. If, oh, okay. Um, as far as like kind of like the the dark undertones and like kind of the twisting plot and stuff like that. Uh, certainly of the first story, which we'll again discuss probably at some length without yeah. trying to spoil too much. Yeah, I, w- I could see that. I think that's generous because I, the one thing that Bong Joon-ho has going for him that I love anyway is I think it's a certain kind of – I keep wanting to say the adjective snappy lately and I don't know why. Maybe I've been watching 90s uh, 90s advertisements about like snap shoes or something. <laughs> I don't know. Certainly that might be a YouTube algorithms can get strange on you quickly. But no, I, I, it, he's got a certain snappiness in his filmmaking. The, the way he cuts and the way he kind of introduces action elements very abruptly, it mm-hmm. kind of has a very whiplashy speed to it. And I, do, I don't get the sense of that at all from this. But no, I think, in, yeah, in terms of darkness, yeah, perhaps that's good. Mine picked up on that too in terms of tone. My simile review is that I thought reading this was like conversing and I didn't remember his name, nor could I be bothered to Google it because it's more fun when you don't Google it. But it's it's the sad <laughs> AI or the machine from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was a kind of satirical sci-fi novel and turned into a movie. Mm-hmm. There's a robot in that story who's kind of, he's got a kind of cumbersome look. He's very just round and kind of lumbers around. And so, and he, his voice in the movie has a, such a droll, really downcast tone to it. And I think if you hear some of these stories in that voice, I mean, it completely changes it because then it becomes humorous instead of just the regular kind of sorrowful. But right. I think it kind of improves it and gives it a little bit of life. It's a perfect fit, also imperfect though, because it does, it makes it more goofy. I don't think any of this plays for humor or goofiness. So in that way, it doesn't really work, but it has a certain repetitive and again almost overwhelming sorrow to it that that ai machine has and Mm -hmm. yeah it just reminded me of that in a silly way i love that comparison and and it is by douglas adams uh if you are yeah curious uh but yeah when i read that on our outline i just kind of like chuckled to myself and i was like i i think that i would find this reading a lot more interesting if it were placed in the context that the robot had been placed in but yeah the yeah the obsession yeah. with like every small little happenstance makes him depressed <laughs> that right right that i think fits pretty well with um 
with what I imagine. They're Akuta such kindred God spirits. Like. Yeah. Completely. The the AI from that story and this and him again, it's mostly him. We're gonna have to just say it's a Kutagawa because the the most of it that is so depressed in tone is his autobiographical stuff. It's yeah. not the short story is a pretty I don't think it's straightforward in terms of structure and ideas, but it's a pretty straightforwardly written story. It's not like it has some kind of strange or unique element to it to make it really pop. It that's kind of in the structure. But no, the the really depressed sounding stuff is his autobiographical stuff for sure um, which you know i'm not going to speculate on his mental health or psychology but like i said he very young suicide um from from him so i you know, who knows how that stuff tied into that it he explicitly talks about killing himself in this collection multiple times so yeah. if you're sensitive to that then be forewarned yeah, let's and try his and make fear some... of mental mental illness too with his mom mm-hmm. and and even himself he was saying uh, somewhere in the life of a stupid man like the fear of becoming ill mentally yeah. like his mother so there's yeah there's some discussion yeah, she, of that she's kind of a limp haunted figure in his yeah. life seemed like she was mostly unemployed or maybe at the time in japan couldn't even be employed i'm not gonna speak on kind of gender relations or societal uses of women's labor at that time but she it sounded like she was just idle in their home a lot and didn't speak and was just depressed and it was kind of like ghost-like yeah and what made i thought that she was maybe an opium addict because she smoked Mm -hmm. a long pipe and after like smoking she her eyes would glaze over and she was addicted to just smoking all the time and she began to just waste away in front of their eyes so i think also there was opium involved there gotcha and i hear long pipe and i think of like playful hobbits you know my (laughs) mind has been my mind has been corrupted by uh, our notions of like drug consumption through pipes is just so different than uh, you know i haven't grown up during an opium crisis our our drug crises these days are not they don't take the form of a long wooden pipe so that's it's such you're completely right i i think i probably skimmed right over that idea but yeah that comes up very clearly did you find any connections other than to the long wooden pipes in the lord of the rings <laughs> that was your connection <laughs> it is now uh, yeah <laughs> no um i i connected it to um the issues that people have been talking about with the internet age where um with the advent of the internet people and like with you know mmos and and right um, other uh, gaming techniques and stuff like that and chat rooms versus like in-person chats and stuff. It do people even use chat rooms anymore? I don't know, but, um, they use forums. There you I think go. unironically, there's still <laughs> forums out there. Reddit okay. is basically just a series of forums anyway. That's true. Um, so I think of it as like, in terms of the, the loneliness that people, mm-hmm. um, are afraid that the internet has kind of, um, induced in the public, uh, a separation from, uh, humanity and, and a, an overwhelming sense of loneliness. And I think that could also uh, kind of connect to with what's happening with um, the coronavirus as far as like the, the isolationism that a lot of people are going through because of the fear of um, getting sick. It's, it's still that separation, even though it's, it's a chosen separation, unlike um, Akutagawa feels, then it's still a separation and a sense of overwhelming loneliness. Yeah, I've, I'm fascinated to wonder, and all we can do is wonder. But I'm fascinated to wonder what he would have made of the internet age, and especially oh, I'm sure he how would have that. Hated it. <laughs> yeah, I think he would have found it deeply isolating. A lot of the anecdotes in here that feel somewhat positive are of him 
like meeting with friends at play, doing a coffee shop dinner or mm-hmm. something like that. It feels like there's there's a little bits of warmth in those moments. Not much though, but right. there's certain snippets. Yeah, and especially how kind of internet culture, online culture has affected Japan's dating life. I remember reading who knows where Atlantic, New York, or some some magazine piece though that was just about modern dating and it profiled a couple countries. Maybe it was actually from. I think it might have been a quote from that Anziz Ansari book, that actor, the guy from like Master of None and Parks and Rec. He made a book about dating, um, modern dating, and I think they excerpted a chapter. I don't know what book it was from, something like that. But anyway, uh, Japan has very low levels of marriage, dating, and childbearing in the last um, 20 or so years compared to other countries of similar economic type and stuff. So it was kind of just a study of how that's being affected by, I don't know, internet culture, online things. There's other cultural things to compound, but yeah, no, I I think he would have found the world more isolating. Mm -hmm. The other quick connection I'll mention then that I found in the text was the story in the grove, or was it in the cedar grove? In in a bamboo grove. There we go. In a bamboo grove, uh, which was turned into a movie named Rashomon, which I'll talk about, but that story is based around basically the structure of it is hearing confessions from different people or, or sort of expert interviews or interviews of experts rather in the, around this case, this um, assault and murder case. And I think the basic format there is quite familiar to modern readers. And so the connections there are simple. I mean, courtroom dramas with competing confessions with different points of view, different agendas being laid out and sort of people having to infer what could be real, what could be a lie, that sort of basic structure holds up quite well. It's, you know, gets at notions of truth telling and lying and has some just, again, essential human themes in it that works seemingly across time periods, though this was a modernist work. So it's not like we're reading something super old this week. But yeah, I think that structure held up quite well. That's great. I'm thinking like uh, a 1920s Japanese NCIS. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the pre-war days, I think, would be would be interesting. Yeah, the yeah. rise rise of an empire, CIS style. Yeah. So that, that could actually turn dark quickly as well, now that I think about it, with some of the way the, the colonization and stuff went. Yeah. But maybe they could keep a light tone. Good luck, whoever's writing that show. Good luck pitching that pilot. I suppose you could just push it to HBO and turn it into an episode of True Detective, though it would fit the it would fit yeah. the bleak tone of that quite well. We have hinted at his tone and style enough. I say we just dive into some quotes. Then this is where we like to deep dive a little bit. We will try and avoid spoilers as this is a review uh, as best we can, but we will give some quotes for analysis here. Do you want to start this week, Amanda, for giving some quotes for clarification? Sure. Um, yeah, I've got. A few quotes, but I will go into, um, since we mentioned in a bamboo grove specifically, um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and jump into a quote from there. And it says, uh, this is the robber speaking. Am I the only one who kills people? You, you don't use your swords. You kill people with your power, with your money. Sometimes you kill them on the pretext of working for their own good. It's hard to say who is a greater sinner, you or me. So I thought that was um, pretty funny because the person who is moralizing is actually the robber who uh, I'm not going to spoil it or anything, but the, mm-hmm. um, a robber, a criminal is the one who's like pointing to 
um, these officials and saying, you think I'm the bad guy just because I rob people and maybe I kill people. You guys are killing people too, just in different ways that are more acceptable according to, you know, uh, the mores of our, of our system right now. But I, I, I thought that was funny and like ironic that that's coming from the robber, but also it's kind of indicative of, um, Akutagawa's way of thinking where he very much uh, scorns a lot of people. And we can see that in his autobiography writings in yeah. his collection too. He scorns people. He scorns civilization. He kind of ostracizes himself from all that, but he's also, he feels alone a lot of the time. So mm-hmm. he looks down on people and then he's upset that he feels so lonely Um and he he very much takes a a very harsh view of humanity and and he talks in length about greed as well so in these writings in these collections um expect to see quite a bit of moralizing and and kind of like almost finger wagging at yeah. uh, society in general i think that with the way that that story twists it compared to the what we let read and reviewed last time. The moralizing was so much lighter. Wasn't Antigone what we did last time? At yes. least that's my memory. Again, we review these and they kind of start to blur together a bit. The order of them, anyway. Yeah. But I think in in that way, it has twists and turns at the end. And the fact that the final confession is given through a medium. I mean, can you trust any of that? It's sort of throws a wrench into the entire story and makes you question and wonder what could be authentic or what could be what could be lying or some kind of subterfuge or something. So I think there's some good story ambiguity there, but I think, yeah, maybe that is the moral though. Um, this is where I'll do my brief aside. I'm hoping you'd better time this. Let's keep this under a minute. Um, I'll, so this short story was famously turned into a, a movie that I really love. I wrote college papers about it and that kind of like took it very far. It was part of a deep intellectual hole I fell into in college, which was basically 1940s, 50s and 60s samurai movies of which I've seen many. I was going to say all of them, but that's a ludicrous claim. There's no way I've seen many of them though. Mostly Kurosawa's movies uh, sure. because he was my favorite director and probably remains so. And so Rashomon, which was the name of the movie that this short story was turned into, I think does the story a ton of favors because one, it casts Toshiro Mifune, who is the thief or the robber in the story, in the movie. And he's just so ludicrously expressive as an actor. He brings such like terrifying fun to the, to this role of a a man who admittedly rapes someone and then kills a guy probably. Um, Though that's again up for debate. And so I guess this tangent is just to say, I think you should, everyone should go watch that movie. Rashomon is an incredible film and it does amazing things with perspective. And it, it honestly doesn't deviate from this short story that much. It's pretty faithful as far as an adaptation goes. It even keeps in the, the confessional style and it has the, it has the, the medium come in and do that like spiritual recreation that is really again, debatable and casts everything in a different way. Mm-hmm. And anyway, uh, I'll read my quote that I chose from that uh, in the Grove or in the Bamboo Grove story. But I think, yeah, the, the short aside here, the plea I'm giving is just you should all go watch Rashomon the movie whenever you get a chance. It's really incredible and has, you know, Mifune is like, I, you know, I don't know the history of Japanese cinema or something, but he must be on the Mount Rushmore of Japanese actors just because of his he was just prolific. He was probably in hundreds of movies and almost never put out a bad performance that I've seen. So at any Excellent. rate, Kurosawa yeah, is an amazing 
director as yeah. well. I yeah. am the Japanese uh, film class that I took, uh, I think mm-hmm. of the six or seven uh, Japanese films, mostly samurai films, but a, also a couple of sure, um, yeah. anime films. Um, but th- like half of the samurai films were by Kurosawa. Yeah, so- I could imagine it. I mean, his almost all of them were turned into Westerns as well, though Rashomon yeah. I don't think ever was. It is a uniquely told story, and I don't know how it would translate or what they would do to make that a Western. Mm-hmm. But I know Yojimbo and Sanjuro were turned into Westerns. The Hidden Fortress. Well, the Hidden Fortress wasn't really, but uh, George Lucas has cited the Hidden Fortress as uh, Star Wars inspiration, which is really odd. But there's like side characters that are kind of like R2-D2 and C-3PO. They're, they're like goofy little humorous side characters um, in terms of how the characterizations play out and how those relationships go. So there's that. Seven Samurai was turned into the Magnificent of Seven. They've remade that again, I think. Hollywood remade that again a couple of years ago, I believe. Yeah. Was it still called the Magnificent Seven or something else? Yeah, I think they did. Um, That's the one with Chris Pratt in it, I think he was in it. But then um, Adam Sandler remade it into a comedy, and I forgot what he named that one. It's it's similar to the Magnificent Seven, but it's like – it's a play on words too, if I remember, but uh, if you want a real, um, yeah, the, you, I, the timer has clearly been turned off cause I'm about to go on another quick tangent, but if you want a real amazing YouTube, just deep dive to fall into, look up clips from throne of blood, which is another Kurosawa Mufune collaboration. It's a remake of Macbeth. It's a, well, it's a retelling an adaptation of Macbeth to be in feudal Japan, but there's a scene at the end of it, which if you know, it's a spoiler. What Macbeth dies, like you can't spoil a tragedy like that. It, it's the ending scene when he's getting killed, who, Mifune's character, who is basically Macbeth or who is Macbeth. They shot it. Obviously, this was in the 40s or 50s, I think in the 50s at that point. But they have him get killed by his own soldiers by like death by a thousand arrows. And mm. if you watch it, this is, again, a great YouTube thing to go look up. If you watch it on YouTube which I'm pretty sure the Criterion Collection posted the clip. He actually gets shot by the arrows. They had like expert marksmen actually shoot him, but he's wearing very thick. He's you can you can see it too once you know that it's there. His chest armor is just planks of wood that he was clearly wearing under his armor. Like when you when you see it and you know, you'll notice how puffed out his chest is. But that's because he was actually getting shot in the chest and in his wooden chest plate by real arrows. Uh, which when you see it happen, you would think it's just like old time movie magic, yeah. but no, it's just him legitimately getting Risking bombarded by this hail. Yeah. Just getting bombarded <laughs> by this hail of arrows. Wow. And yeah, anyway, it's Jeez, an incredible adaptation. Your art. <laughs> yeah. Another movie that I wrote about in college too, which is why these things are so firmly lodged in my b- brain, I yeah. think. Well, that and it's incredible. I still maintain it's the best Shakespeare adaptation ever made. That's my, Ooh. there's my hot take for the pod. You can mark that one down, timestamp it. It's around 20 some minutes, 22 or three. There you go. The best Shakespeare adaptation ever put on film. And I don't even think it's close. A lot of the other ones are very stiff. Yeah. This one is so well. They cut stuff when they need to. They cut, make some things more concise. The effects are really fascinating. The way it was adapted to do certain things in Japan versus the U.S. or you know European cultures is, I think, really prescient and works really well and is just better. It's just a better version. Um, holds up well. At any rate, so there's my long tangent. But the this quote from the story, um, page nine, says it's the same one from The Thief. 
He says, I don't have to tell you the outcome of the fight. My sword pierced his breast on the 23rd thrust. Not till the 23rd. I want you to keep that in mind. I still admire him for that. He's the only man who ever lasted even 20 thrusts with me. And then it says cheerful grin. I think his characterization of the story is the most fun, but I would just echo what I've already stated, probably overstated. He's just so much more lively in the movie. It's the characterization in that because of the acting he can put into it and because of the way he expresses makes him such a more like clownish but horrifying figure who's really reveling in this. And so I think the story kind of lets him down a little. Then again, the way that fight is described with the the counting of the thrust is like that's classic samurai type of I don't know. It's like classic samurai portrayal of the precision of the fighting, the way everything is so measured and meted out and that it's this really precise tactical affair. So I think I kind of enjoyed that line, but it did make me, especially that ending part, the cheerful grin. Part of me just thought that's Mifune put a million times more power and potency behind that line. Like reading it in the story was a bit underwhelming. I still think that story holds up though, as far as just a general short story and an intriguing little tale. I thought it was pretty enjoyable to read, but anyway, my long plea is just watch the movie. I think, I think the movie Rashomon is just better, which is a better version. I'll have to keep that in mind. Yeah, there you go. Some movie recommendations. We don't do that often, but there you go. I will uh, throw in another quote then. Let me pull another one because I did pull another one on purpose that I think... Uh, I, that I made me dislike reading this and that I would use in the review as kind of an anti-recommendation. This is from page 31. It says, and this is from his memoir autobiography. It says, he then experienced an unfamiliar scratchy feeling in his throat. And before he knew it, he had dropped a glob of phlegm on the dictionary. Phlegm, but it was not phlegm. He thought of the shortness of life and once again imagined the coconut blossom, the blossom of the coconut palm soaring high far across the ocean. There are tons of moments like these, and I think you could make an interesting study out of the way nature is interwoven as a motif in this. And there, there's enough diversity to it, especially the moon recurs a lot. The moon is a clear motif for him and kind of represents sometimes romantic potency, but other times it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of haunted. Anyway, right. there's plenty you could make out of it. I think the nature stuff is intriguing, but the non sequitur nature of what I just read and the sort of abruptness of it is going to be off-putting to people. There are times when things here just end with no conclusion. I mean, there's rarely conclusions given in his writing. Uh, the short story is an exception, but in the autobiographical writing, there's not much in terms of clear conclusions or, or summary thoughts. The The way nature is deployed is usually not in a... It's not in a cohesive way that feels like he wants you to figure it out, quote unquote. It right. feels like it in a way that you could. You could ascribe some thought to it. You could apply theory to it, or you could apply critical analysis or something, but it feels at times just kind of limp and tossed out there. It's almost as if he's posing a question, but not answering it in terms of the, the way it's put together, which I think can be frustrating for some readers, but in that way, it's kind of modernist too. So I, I don't know. I think a quote like that to me just represented the style in a way that I think would frustrate some people. I kind of shrugged at it. I think I've read enough modernist literature to not be bothered but as far as a review goes or a recommendation i don't know i think it would be off-putting for a lot of people yeah if if you're not a fan of stream of consciousness or anything that's even remotely similar to stream of yeah. consciousness, the, the style in this in these pieces might be um a, a bit unwelcome um yeah but and i was reading up um on the the wikipedia page that um mm -hmm. <clears throat> that Akutagawa was very much about 
form rather than like mm-hmm. word choice. So he was very much into the structure of a piece, which I think really shows in the in a bamboo grove where yeah, he's part of the structure there. And also even with the autobiographical pieces, he kind of plays with structure in in that he has these subtitles and some of the subtitles are are pretty interesting actually especially yeah, yeah. take into account how it progresses so i think that that's nice but at the same time i am not a fan i personally am not a fan of stream of consciousness i found it myself more forgiving with the autobiographical pieces because i know that it's autobiographical but yeah yeah, yeah. it it would have grated on my nerves if i had gone into it thinking that I was reading fiction. Certainly. And I think too, with, with stream of consciousness, which we haven't had to cover a lot on here. I know we've alluded to it in previous episodes and brought up authors who became famous and pioneered that style. But I think with stream of consciousness, you often, you strike upon really beautiful moments, but then you just feel like there was nothing presented to you in a holistic way or as a whole, which can be really infuriating to read when you think, wow, that person came up with that string of sentences that had such beauty and really gave me a clear idea or had such a wonderful stirring image or how original was that? Or, you know, I'm just intoning these half compliments, but that often happens with stream of consciousness. And then you look back and you ask, you know, a friend asks you, what did you read? And you say, I don't know. I don't know what I, it was some kind of meandering contemplations about something. And, and that way, I guess it can kind of feel like some poetry at, at times. I could see people making that comparison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like Did you have any there. quotes? Well, and I, I also happily throw out my final quote then, because this was a quote I really loved. He's describing a woman he met. He says he could grapple with her intellectually. He says he barely extricated himself from the crisis by writing a number of lyric poems, some under the title Woman of Hakuraku. These conveyed a sense of heartbreak as when one knocks away a brilliant coating of snow frozen onto a tree trunk. And it, again, it's another nature image, which I kind of grabbed onto, but I think the concision of that, it feels, and this is going to, I was just going to say this might sound insensitive. I don't want to just compare this to another Japanese medium because I don't know much about Japanese literature, but there's a certain precision to that nature comparison that reminds me of haiku. I know it's not a haiku or it's not haiku, but the way it evokes a natural image and gives a slight, the whole thing with, with haiku is it's restrained, right? The whole form is restrained and it has, you have to be very precise in the way you deploy whatever image it is you're deploying. And so the tree, the snow coming off of the tree in that way, it's a really beautiful sight. And he doesn't comment on it again. That's the end of that entire section, I think, or that little paragraph. And I really thought that was just such a beautiful line. What what to make of it, though? I mean, that's going to be the reader's going to have to do that work. Yeah, for sure. And that's actually one of the quotes that I also um, highlighted in my yeah. reading. Yeah. And uh this this in particular made me think of Hemingway in in how concise okay. yeah. uh, the image is and how um, how pleasant it is and I, I love the idea of like the heartbreak just like a heartbreak that you would feel when you knock off some snow from a tree trunk I'm just like is that heartbreaking why is that heartbreaking like it's very I, I love the image and it and it made me stop and think about like, why would that be heartbreaking? Is it because you're disturbing something so pure? Is it because you're right? So snow innocence, but those are also Western ideals. And I found myself mm-hmm. as I was looking at the symbols and the motifs that I found in the writing, he, he studied Western literature. Yeah, but, he mentions it many times. Yeah. And 
yeah, oh, and several. he studied Western thought philosophers and everything. So yeah. I, but I was like, but is he? Do the symbols in his writing are they supposed to be symbols from his reading readings of of Western culture, or are they symbols of Eastern culture that I would have no idea about because I haven't studied, um, you know, right. Eastern literature and it and. Uh, except for certain translations and stuff. So of course, yeah. So it, it left me kind of wondering too about I, at that point, I, I did put some faith in the translation, though. I know th the translator is not going to change the image you know, they're not yeah. going to fundamentally change it or something, but right. yeah, my interpretation was as it was, it, like you said, it was snow is an intriguing one because it's such a clean, pristine symbol. It's, it's such an obvious because of archetype and color and stuff. It's such right. a, clearly yeah pristine thing but there is certain there is a certain when snow falls and creates like a surface or a blanket it has a an extra cleanness to it that even when you disrupt it it can it sometimes when you knock snow drifts like that it kind of keeps the shape but then falls away and so it's i don't know yeah i th I, I did was associating it in that way that it was like you're making something filthier you haven't really made it filthier though it's like you you ruined the the perfectness of the th original object but also didn't really transform it either. So it's it's as if you ruined it of your own accord or you sort of had a, a catastrophe of your own making or something or like you brought the impurity. It's not like it's less pure than it was. It's just that you have, or it could be a facade, I guess, too, and that it's covered. It could be like you're knocking away some kind of pure facade and seeing something else, but the truth beneath. I like that. Yeah, that could be it too. Well, and the thing is we could, uh, any of the hundred things I just said, the nonsensical yeah. things uh, could be valid. <laughs> Cause again, it doesn't come up again. There's no more commentary. There's nothing else to go off of. You have his broken relationship with his wife and that you can go based on that. And, you know, he talks more about their, their kind of intellectual sparring or the family they have anyway. So there are other ways you could dive into interpretation, but yeah. No, I think it, it just leaves the it just leaves the burden on the reader to carry that as far as you want to carry it. And I, I was happy to. But then again, would a reader want to do that work? I'm not sure. Yeah. Did you have any quotes that you enjoyed or any others you want to throw out there? I feel like I've totally hogged this uh, segment. I think you're fine. Um, but yeah, I do have a couple of quotes. Uh, so one of the things that I did enjoy um, as far as his writing style is that I did enjoy his use of juxtaposition in his writing. Mm -hmm, yeah. And so this one is from life of a stupid man. She did once give him a bottle of cyanide with the remark, as long as we have this, it will give us both strength. And it did indeed give him strength. So it was just kind of a funny image that what gives him strength is actually something that's, that can kill him. And here we see the fixation on suicide, on his death and right. Right. Longing to be kind of like done with the world. But also he talks about how he, wants to live so he's kind of back and forth uh between the two there which is something that he also plays on plays with in that autobiographical writing but i i do like the juxtaposition and but this also gives us a taste of kind of the uh, uh the overwhelming sadness that you get as you read just because he is so depressed throughout yeah this piece in particular <laughs> and the juxtapositions do feel distinctly modern which we're about to hop to in the literary corner but it does feel like it feels like ideas juxtapositions these coll collisions it feels like things that a, a modern reader or not even modern a, a current day contemporary reader today would probably be able to kind of square in their mind i feel like we've gotten used to those sort of ideas and we're also an irony drenched 
people now and like our literature and storytelling can be irony drenched at times. So I think I feel like, you know, that would be an intriguing image for people to read about or they I feel like they could they could hang with the tone of it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, the other quote that I pulled, I pulled for a couple of reasons. One reason being that it's a direct allusion to um, the tale of, um, what is his name? Icarus, who flies um, too close to the sun. And you see a lot of references in um, Life of a Stupid Man um, to uh, philosophers, Western, in particular, Western philosophers and Western writers. Um, and so it, it's especially he, he really enjoyed Voltaire. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, unlike Mozart. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, sure, sure. That's fair. <laughs> And he's French, you know. Some yeah. people have some people have regional biases that are hard to shake. I guess <laughs> those, those uh, hurts go back deep, or they go back far. Yeah, they do. <laughs> um, so he—that's what made me think about. Oh well, you know, he—he's obviously well versed in in Western culture in regards to literature and and their uh, processes for thinking. Um, which made me question the symbols in the writing and, and think about like, are they supposed to be Western symbols? Are they Eastern symbols and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So in this quote, um, I really enjoyed the image and I was, when I initially read it, I thought that I, it would turn into a cliche just cause you know, Icarus flying close to the sun. Like that is a very well-known image to everybody and it can yeah. come off as, kind yeah. of, you know, overplayed. Clear illusion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that he he actually did a pretty good job with it. So he said, uh, the higher he flew, the further below him sank the joys and sorrows of a life bathed in the light of intellect, dropping ironies and smiles upon the shabby towns below. So what I liked about that was, yeah, it could have gone towards the cliche, but when he's talking about... Um, being bathed in the light of intellect, right? The, instead of bathed in the light of the sun, it's the sun is the intellect. Um, and then down below, it's his writing style, right? He's dropping ironies and smiles. So it's like a, his way of interacting with people. So I thought that that was a, a really nice image there. It, and It does prop him up and it's sort of a, I mean, granted in that story, the person who flies too close dies, which... I think probably maybe that is part of it. He's he's getting to the point of if you realize too much or if you if you have too much thought or something, if you dedicate your life too much to the intellectual pursuit, you'll you'll just yeah. burn yourself out or something. But it does place him in a in a sort of position of power, which in the rest of the collection he does not seem to hold himself in particularly high regard. Or at least I think he Actually, maybe he does at times, but I guess he doesn't seem particularly hopeful or proud of anything that he's done or accomplished, I guess. That doesn't come across very clearly. And this is a case where it almost seems like he's, I don't know, promoting himself? Not in a, yeah, not in the way we think of like ad promoting, but just being more confident or expressing confidence or something or expressing that he achieved something. Then again, he's about to burn his wings and die, so... Yeah, I think it's it's meant to the way that I read it is it's a reflection on his um, writing career, and so he knows that yeah, he yeah. You know, he's uh, very intellectual. He's he's well read, and uh, his writing um, is well known. But at the same time, and so he's he's kind of building up his sense, his arrogance, and stuff like that in, in that sense. But I think he also was very insecure because. Um, he just was constantly afraid of becoming like his mother 
in a lot of ways, which was something mm-hmm. that he constantly referenced in his writing too. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And he did seem to want to come across as an intellectual, like he wanted people to know sort of it's, a, yeah. he wanted to promote that part of himself or sort of, advertise it i guess i keep returning to that word let's jump to the literary corner this is the educational segment of the podcast where we try and teach you something about literature or literary history or some element uh you set us up for this week amanda though i just jumped in with a i put down a definition from the penguin dictionary but i'll let you introduce modernist literature and walk us through that part of it um what is modernist literature and how does it apply here So I kind of mentioned it earlier, but modernist literature focuses on structure. So structuralism uh, very much Mm -hmm. is steeped in um, the modernist uh, literary movement. And so it was the stream of consciousness was a huge component of that. And the themes that were found most in modernist literature uh, would be themes about um, the the evils of capitalism and the evils of, of society at large because of um, the shortcomings of humanity and um, the idea of, of loneliness and especially yeah. as an intellectual, the loneliness as somebody who is superior to that society in a lot of ways. And also the, uh, the pushback against uh, industry in order to embrace. So you see a little bit of a romantic return there, the pushback against yeah. industry and the embrace of nature a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one thing that Penguin's Dictionary, which was pretty long, they also, their literary dictionary loves to give just huge lists of examples and author names and stuff because it's kind of a reference guide. But at any rate, they do mention that it, it did concern itself, the movement with language and how to use it representationally or otherwise, and with the writing itself. And but you said precisely structuralism was and is a, from the outset, connecting with modernism. The thing that they didn't mention that I remember doing a lot of studying with was, yeah, just the ideas of alienation that a move toward a more mecha- uh, I was going to say me- mechanized, mechanical life, uh, but a more structured life uh, that happened around the turn of the century with, with the advent of things like, yeah, factories and assembly lines, for example, um, are, and how that creates isolation and how cities and the rise of urbanism can be isolating as well. These are key themes in a lot of modernist literature, not all. Certainly, it's a pretty diverse movement, and there were many sub-movements within it, you know, like the Harlem Renaissance and other American things. And so it it gets diverse quickly, like a lot of literary movements do. But yeah, I thought this was... In terms of theme, this was definitely modernist. I, the stream of consciousness is there, though, again, to me, it had a lot more, I don't want to keep saying haiku, but it had these, the, all the way that nature was evoked, it didn't feel stream of consciousness. It felt like poetic almost in a way, which I will say stream of consciousness doesn't always feel that way to me. It doesn't yeah. always feel like poetry. Sometimes it feels like, it feels like rhetorical combat or something, something much more uh, unwelcoming or something, but this this didn't feel challenging to read. I don't think this would be difficult to read. I think the meaning would be difficult to discern for people, and, and I think it was for me. I didn't come out of here with very many clear ideas, but yeah, it certainly felt readable, but had those elements too. Yeah, and I think that if uh, with the story in a bamboo grove, because it is a story and not just yeah, uh, yeah. an autobiography, it, it really shows the the focus on the structure of the story and playing with that structure. Yeah. Well, let me tag into that then and segue into our review segment. This is a two-parter. We'll do the what's good about it segment first. Rest in peace, Russell French. That's my grandfather. This is the memorial segment for him. 
I think the good thing about this collection was the Bamboo Grove. It's a great short story. It holds up well. It's pretty contained. It's, the structure is very clear and I think creates a lot of interest and questions in the reader. The movie Rashomon is incredible. So it was made into a great adaptation that, again, I think you should watch. And I, so that to me is easily what was good about it. What did you think was good about this collection? Uh, so... I, I enjoyed that it was so easy to read both the the fiction and mm-hmm. the nonfiction aspects, and and I'm not normally a, yeah. a huge fan of nonfiction, but it was an easy read. It wasn't anything that um, I struggled with. And if you're into the, the playful like structure, uh, then yeah, I think it's it's pretty good. And if you're into the insights of an artist, right? So kind of like if if you like. The Sorrows of Young Werther, I feel like you would probably enjoy these selections. <laughs> yeah, the interest, yeah, and he mentions, um, doesn't he mention Gotha? Mm-hmm. He seemed to kind of worship him. Maybe it was that sort of depth of emotion that he was envious of or something yeah. that he really admired or loved. Go check out our Gotha episode, though we, The Sorrows of Young Werther, we did a book club on, so like a deep dive, but I also did a Gotha episode that was just like these brief philosophical points of his. So that's available. Uh, Finally, then we'll do our official ratings, which is on a simple one to three scale. One being do not read this, two being perhaps read it, qualified recommendation. And three being definitely read this. I will start us off. It's a one for me, though I hesitated a bit. I'm pretty confident in that. I did love modernism and I love the classes or, you know, different studies I did of that in school. I think modernism as a literary movement is essential to understand and has tons of interesting stuff in it. But it's for that reason, I would say that you can just pass on this. I I don't, it didn't do anything much for me in terms of modernism. I think there are better movements to study like the Harlem Renaissance that just will have more approachable and interesting ideas, I, I suppose I could say. The autobiographical aspects of it felt kind of scattered, which again is kind of enjoyable. But then again, in that scattershot nature, there wasn't a ton of, it felt like language play happening or I wanted, I wanted those vignettes to feel more explosive or playful or just a little louder. And they're, they're feel, felt very restrained to me and, you know, quite clearly de- depressed, which I don't mean as a criticism you can certainly write. Most authors seem depressed and write about it, but uh, I just didn't feel alive to me. I read a collection last year called once again for, uh, for Thucydides, which was very vignette focused and a lot like this, just little snapshots of a life. And I thought that was incredible, but it was mostly because the language was just exciting and this just didn't have it. So I think it just the lack of voice and, you know, it has, again, elements of modernism you could pick up on, but I'm comfortable in a one. Rashomon's incredible. Kurosawa's a genius. Just go watch his movies or whatever. Uh, You know, that's the (laughs) very different stuff. And again, I feel like I'm just culturally conflating things in a way I don't mean to, but it, this story was directly taken and adapted so that it's out there. How about uh, for you, Amanda? What are your uh, thoughts? What's the rating? Sure. I gave it actually a two. Um, so mm-hmm. I agree that In a Bamboo Grove was really well well done. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, I would, I'm actually interested after reading In a Bamboo Grove, I am interested in reading more of his fiction. Me too. I'm not Necessarily interested in reading any more of his nonfiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But his fiction for sure, because I think that he's got some interesting ideas. And even in the autobiographical pieces, there's still some language there that I think is really interesting. And, and his yeah. buildup of motifs and symbols, I think, in a fiction format would really catch my interest. Um, I. Yeah. I was okay with the life of a stupid man as far as that 
autobiographical piece because I, I did, I do enjoy um, psychological pieces. I do enjoy getting insights into others' minds and thoughts and feelings. So that was what got me through that reading. And also, again, you could see the the symbols and the motifs in that. The other story, though, the death register, I was just so not into that. I don't all. even remember because both were autobiogra- autobiographical or autobiography. I don't even think my brain really differentiated. I just kept reading them. I just plowed through one and went to the other. I don't even, I remember one of them was when he was quite young. And then another one was kind of tracking his life as he was in his twenties and he has children or gets married at some point. Yeah. That's the only way my brain processed it. That was just kind of a general chronology. They felt incredibly similar to me. I, yeah. you know, I, I found actually quite a, a that the death register in particular, that's when he's writing about when he was young um, and about his mother like that. So in that piece, it felt almost like he was just listing events and facts rather than, um, rather than actually like describing anything. There's no real uh, use of symbols or anything like that, that I really picked up on. Yeah. And the life of a stupid man did, at least when he jumped around, which was frequently, those vignettes are very short. Some are a paragraph. And so at least when he jumped around, it did add a ton of variety and intrigue to it. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it for me. If this were three short stories, it might have been a two, maybe a three. I mean, in a bamboo grove, again, I can't rave enough about the movie, but the story was enjoyable to read. I thought it was well written and had enough against structural intrigue and it was fun and yeah, it reminded me a lot of a movie I loved. Yeah. Well, that I think is about as fair and thorough a review as we can give. Um, if you're interested in modernism, do some Googling. You'll find some incredible work out there and perhaps check out some of the short stories. I don't think this is a, I, th- I think avoid his autobiography unless you're looking for a very <laughs> certain slice, very specific slice of depressed, really dour kind of literature. But you know, sometimes that, that is the mood. Yeah. Next week we'll be covering some Tolstoy. I believe those are just short stories. So we're jumping from one, kind of sad Japanese figure to one sad Russian one. I guess that's the, I guess that is the thematic thread that I'm going to predict we will have. Thanks so much for listening as ever. And we will see you next week between the classics. 